Welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. painful truth that is going to be exposed and that painful truth has to fuel everything it's a thematic truth and it has to fuel your characters and it has to fuel the problem of your film and it has to be the thing that brings everything to a head as soon as I locked in on that for myself as a screenwriter the entire thing became quite clear introduced myself to Richard Linkletter who I absolutely admire I think he's a, a wonderful filmmaker and I said to him I just introduced I said hey I'm Will Collins I wrote Song of the Sea the animated movie and he says oh my god I just watched that movie with my kids two nights ago it was absolutely beautiful I love that movie and I was and I just said I'm happy I'm okay you know this is the it was a cool moment I think becoming a parent has changed my attitude towards life and my career and all that sort of stuff. And I've become a lot more focused on just happiness. I don't frame my work in accolades anymore. I just enjoy what I do. I'm a creative person and I take pleasure in, you know, working with creative people and seeing things being made. Listen to your internal voice and focus and be creative. If you want to be creative, be creative. Don't make your goal the Oscar. Failure is your best friend. Failure is tough, right? And then you will actually become stronger, your work will become stronger, and your your spine will get a bit tougher as well. So that's important. Hi everyone, this is your host Fei Wu here and you're listening to the Face World Podcast. My podcast was created to delve into the meanings of our lives among extraordinary people you can relate to, including artists, musicians, authors, doctors, and more. And still, I'm constantly searching for authentic souls to connect with one voice at a time. So thank you for joining me in this movement to celebrate song and unsung heroes. Today, I have a very special guest. His name is Will Collins. Will is the screenplay writer for the Irish animation film called Song of the Sea, which is about a young Irish boy named Ben and his little sister, Saoirse, a girl who can turn into a seal, go on an adventure to free the fairies and save the spirit world. Like other cartoon saloon films, Song of the Sea was hand-drawn, the film began production soon after the release of their other very successful film called The Secret of Kells, released in 2009 and premiered at the 2014 Toronto International Film Festival. According to Wikipedia, the film Son of the Sea had a limited release in certain countries, but received overwhelming acclaim and was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature at the 87th Academy Awards in 2015. I discovered Sound of the Sea on Amazon Prime one day, completely unexpected, and I remember having to set just everything aside that I was doing completely be absorbed by the film since the beginning credit. Phenomenal is the word that comes to mind for its animation, music, and writing. Immediately after the film, I reached out to Will Collins, the screenplay writer, and Will took me on a journey of his own, 
from the inception of the idea for Song of the Sea to how Will was introduced as a writer and working closely with Tong Moore, who is the co-founder of Cartoon Saloon, also director and illustrator for the film. When Song of the Sea was nominated to win an Oscar, Will was invited to join a luncheon with the world's greatest filmmakers and artists. He sat down next to Richard Linklater, the incredible director for the movie Boyhood, a moving 12-year epic that isn't quite like anything else in the history of cinema. But to Will's surprise, Linklater had to share a family story of his with Will. On to the more difficult questions. What was the writing process like? Will speaks to six or seven drafts of the story at least. He lost track of the revisions and effort that went into each step and turn. Did the film have a different ending? Yeah, and you're going to find that out directly from Will. After years of working on the film, Will Collins, Tom Moore, and a team of animators, editors, musicians released a masterpiece to the world. Not knowing what to expect or how people from different cultures, especially, are going to react. That's one tough hurdle for creators and creative work in general. Running Phase World Podcast at a much, much smaller scale is similar in a way that I will never know which episode, storyline, will resonate with listeners. Some of the feedback isn't only difficult to track down, but also hard to measure and qualify. Behind the scenes interview is one of my favorites from the Face World podcast series. So I hope you have as much fun as Will and I did while recording this episode from Oceans Apart. Without further ado, let Will Collins unveil the creativity, hard work, and never heard before stories of Song of the Sea. Will Collins, thank you so much for joining me on Face World. I'm absolutely thrilled. I think you can probably hear that in my voice. <laughs> I just say th- thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for carving out uh, a very important. Uh, you know, I know right now it's still working hours for you, and I know you're working on a new film. Hopefully, we get to expose some of that uh, towards the end of the podcast. But you are Will. You're the writer and actor. And I discovered your work through watching Song of the Sea. And that's basically my latest obsession for animation. And Song of the Sea, I must say, received an 8.2 out of 10 on IMDb. I'm not very crazy about scores in general, but I must mention that it received an 85 on Metacritic. That's great. It's unbelievable because I've used uh, Metacritic for years and they're known for crushing filmmakers sold by giving out these terrible scores. At times it's unnecessary, but clearly it's one of the top players out there. Yeah. Have you seen Metacritic yet? Or No, I haven't actually. No, it's just... I don't look at I don't look at Metacritic just by out of pure habit, uh, but it's good to know. That's that's great to know uh, that it's it's doing so well there. <laughs> um, yeah, that's funny because I realize that it's one place sometimes I even avoid because any film I want to watch and Metacritic's basically directing me the other way. But this one I was really impressed. Um, without giving oh. away, um, you know, the plot of the film, mm-hmm. uh, since there may be a mix of listeners out there who have and also have not seen the yeah. film, Sound of the Sea is about this mythological creature and story from Ireland. Um, but I guess, well, my first question would be, how were you introduced to Song of the Sea? How did this project come about? Well, uh, Song of the, the genesis of uh, Song of the Sea uh, came from the director himself, Tom Moore, who is a, just a, a fantastic creative mind and a wonderful filmmaker and just an all-around great guy. And Tom had made uh, his first feature film, called, which is called The Secret of Kells, and uh, he took him 10 years to get that film made and kind of came up with the story or the idea, the genesis of the idea of the story for Song of the Sea. And um, basically, when he was in the middle of making Secret of Kells, he went on a holiday with his uh, family to, uh, let's say, the west coast of Ireland, and uh, he encountered this, basically, a massacre of seals and their cubs on, on one of the beaches there. And it was a huge culling of this uh, of this family of seals. And uh, it turns out uh, he asked the person he was renting the cottage what happened here, and uh, she said, like, you know, it's the local fishermen, you know, have come, they've culled the seals, and she said it's a it was a real shame because. 
you know, back in olden days, fishermen would never touch seals because they believed that seals embodied the souls of those, you know, humans who'd been lost. So you could, if you're killing a seal, you could be killing the soul of someone you loved or someone else, someone you know who loved. And um, they would never have done it. But she said, since we had our kind of like our Celtic tiger boom in the 1990s, kind of we had stepped away from our culture and our heritage, really, and had lost touch with our kind of mythological storytelling. And so Tom, that's where Tom was inspired to, he was inspired to kind of say, hang on a second, I did, uh, he wanted to embrace this story of seal, of the silkies and seals and whatnot. And um, he discovered that, like, you know, the mythology of silkies who are, you know, mythological creatures who uh, spend half their, when they're in the water, they become seals. And when they're on dry land, they're human. There's so many different origin stories for the silky, you know, uh, um, and we kind of prepared our, our, our one. And how I got involved. So I had actually, my first feature film was a, it was a live action feature film. It hadn't gone into production at that stage, but it was being supported by the Irish Film Board, who are really good at supporting filmmakers and creative people, like you know, to help them develop their work. And Tom knew from his experience uh, working on The Secret of Kells that he wanted to work with a writer as early as possible in the story process on Song of the Sea. So he asked the film board, to, you know, to suggest uh, some writers that might be suitable to work with, and my name was on the list. And it just turned out when I met them, I'd never even heard of um, Song of the Sea. It's actually, I'll tell you the serendipitous tale. This is the long story. <laughs> so this is the long version of the story. So basically, when I finished the script for that film, I was still working a day job. And I, I'd sent the draft into the Irish Film Board, into the executive in there, and he absolutely loved it. And, you know, said, look, we, we want to see, make sure this film gets made. It's beautiful. So as a result, I like, got a lot of attention, a lot of um, uh, traction with, uh, you know, different production companies were wanting to meet me and, you know, see if they can get on board to help produce the movie. And I used up all of my holidays uh, taking meetings effectively. So I had, came to a critical point where I had to make a decision of, okay, I'm going to have to quit my job and try and do this writing thing full time. So I literally quit my job and uh, I was a week unemployed, uh, supposedly in inverted commas, a professional writer at this stage, but without a film actually going, officially going into production with anyone yet. And I said, I had spent so long uh, working on this first live action feature film that was a kind of a, a gritty kind of a kitchen sink road movie type story that I knew the next thing I wanted to do was some, the exact opposite of that, which was basically a fun animated movie, you know, that kind of harkened back to the 1980s Amblin movies that inspired me and Studio Ghibli stuff, which I absolutely adore. Like, you know, I adore uh, my neighbor Totoro. And I was telling my partner, my, who was now my wife, I said, like, I was telling her that morning, I said, that's what I want to do. I want to do a big, cool animated movie. You know, that's really beautiful. That's got that Studio Ghibli thing. And I literally checked my email and I had gotten a random email from Cartoon Saloon saying, oh, we're developing this new feature film. We're looking to talk to writers and we're finishing up our first film called The Secret of Kells. And my first reaction was, oh, I don't really like this title, Secret of Kells. But I looked them up on YouTube and I saw the conceptual trailer for The Secret of Kells. And immediately I went, that's it. That's exactly, this is what I want to do. This is this world, whatever they're creating, that's the tone of what I want to do. And then I met with Tom and the, the gang down in Cartoon Saloon and Pretty much, it was such serendipity. It really was. Um, so much so that Tom thought I was stalking him and had done <laughs> loads of research. For instance, um, my first feature film was set over Halloween weekend, 1987. And Tom had set Song of the Sea in, over Halloween weekend, 1987. So in that weekend, a particular storm happened in Ireland. And it kind of uh, must have stuck in our you know, consciousness or some, in some way, shape or form. And... Um, it was obviously made a significant impression. So kind of, we were basically working around the same kind of mythology. We were around the same age and it was really kind of a perfect serendipitous pairing. And, um, yeah, that's kind of how I got to, to work, start working on Song of the Sea. That's the long version. No, it's not, not at all. First of all, I must say that I have seen the film at this point twice and, right. um, I was captivated during the first 30 seconds, I must say. And, you know, there are films you see, you say, okay, let's give it five to 10 minutes because there's so many options out there uh, today. And with this particular one, within 30 seconds, and just hearing the little boy's voice and the mom's voice, and I had to kind of give up everything I was doing and say, you know what, let's put the podcast project on hold. Let's put some of the other things on hold and let's watch this. And what you just described made me feel like it wasn't just a partnership, but it was Exactly like the story you were telling, there's something very mysterious about kind of this partnership in itself. There's that energy. And, and I know the film is also hand-drawn that 
I want to kind of get into that is something really emotional that captivated. Hope it's not just me because people within my network started replying. It really surprised me, I must say. That's lovely to hear. Yeah. What are some of the feedback you have heard? Well, that kind of surprised you. You know, family, friends, or completely people you have never known. Honestly, you really never know if something's going to work until it's out there and you're getting kind of positive feedback or negative feedback. And while you're doing it, while you're like, you know, song, the the journey of doing Song to Sea was, you know, I started in 2008. I think that's when I I came on board in November 2008. The film wasn't released until 2014. Yeah, it was a really long, protracted process. And now, that wasn't like continuous development. Basically, we were, I had a feature film produced in, in that period. Tom and the gang were finishing up Secret of Kells. They were also developing other things. So we would, the development would stop start. So we would do a draft and maybe six months would go by when they're, they were doing a pilot or something like that. And then we would reconvene and kind of go, okay, we need to go back and do the next draft. So it was a very, very long protracted process. And honestly, there are times when we had drafts where I would think, this is a disaster. <laughs> this is not going to work. We're never going to pull this together. And I suppose a lot of filmmakers have the same feeling. You never know until it's like ripped from your hands if it's, if it's working or not. And even like, you know, with the finished film, like, you know, you always, I'll always have things that are kind of niggling me. Uh, you know, the young, I'm seeing the young writer, you know, and the mis- not, I wouldn't say mistakes, but the decisions that we, we made, you know, the eight year ago version of me and decisions I made back then that maybe I would have done differently. But w- the feedback, it's so lovely to get such positive feedback because I think what, what stands to the film is the kind of emotional truth of the film and how it seems to resonate with audiences, you know, universally across the globe. And one of the most kind of profound encounters with people, I was invited to a film festival in Qatar, out in the Middle East, in Doha. And as soon as I got off the plane, I had a driver take me to a Q&A screening. And it was a screening with local kids, like, you know, local Qatari kids um, from national school. And I went in anyway, and the place was just jammed with these kids, all, you know, maybe about five to, to, to ten years of age. And the, the film was subtitled. And uh, they are absolutely enthralled by it, like, you know, and I was going, wow, this very specific Irish film, you know, with a lot of very, very specific references to 1980s Ireland, you know, or like, you know, or is resonating with these kids from a complete, first of all, a different generation and from a completely different cultural background to us. And then after the movie, what really I found powerful was after the Q&A session, uh, I had like, you know, uh, female teachers coming up with their female students and thanking me and saying, thank you for making this movie. It's so important to see strong female characters yes. and, you know, uh, being, uh, being empowered in a movie. They were really, really, you know, uh, grateful for, for the film. That was a kind of a response that I could never have possibly imagined while making the film. Whereas we were making the film just to kind of like make the movie for ourselves that would entertain us. And um, yeah, so that was one. You, you just reminded me of a, a question I've been thinking about since... Uh, you agree to come onto the podcast. I absolutely watched the, I believe it's called the DFE Q&A, and uh, I'm going to include that video also with the blog post of this podcast as well. I was really touched, you know, with the the film, I mean, the recording of the Q&A was done very well. And I see, like, you describe these kids with, you know, with accents. And I was wondering where they came from. And um, and they were so engaged, asking you some of the questions, which exposed and really helped me organize my thoughts. Um, yeah. My neighbor, Totoro, I mean, there is, when I was growing up, when I was nine or 10 years old, that was the first time for me to watch it. And I think the film actually came out before I was that age. And I was like a few mm. years behind. And uh, as an, I don't know, 18, 20-year-old and um, studying in the United States, I remember thinking not only there was not a single Asian kid who did not grow without watching this film ever, but they're now discovering all these American, you know, Caucasian with kids of any kind of ethical background have seen this film. That's the level of impact. Mm. And yeah. uh, that happens to be one of your favorites as well. So Yeah, yeah. It's a huge, it's, I think it's my favorite uh, Studio Ghibli movie. Absolutely. Um, maybe the reason they work is because they're really specific to a specific point in our lives, really specific to childhood. And there's an honesty and there's a truth that's in My Neighbor Totoro about like what I love about My Neighbor Totoro is that, you know, you have these kids going on this really whimsical adventure, but it's all framed, you know, in the backdrop. It, they have a mother who's really ill in hospital and we're not really sure. It's never kind of pushed in our faces really until the very end. And you realize, and I said, these are kids. And, but, but then I realized because I grew up when I was a kid, uh, my dad was really ill when I was young, you know, 
And I was able to transport myself back to my way of thinking back then. And when you're in it, you're not really focusing on, oh, my dad's sick. You're really kind of still concerned with being a normal kid. But it's kind of affecting you down the road. You don't realize the crash is going to happen later, you know. But at the time, you're kind of getting on with it. And I kind of totally related to that in my neighbor total. It's just kids being fun despite this family trauma that's happening in the on the parental level, you know. And it's really specific, you know, the, the filmmakers, Miyazaki. I would love to get a juicy, you know, uh, documentary about like, you know, what references he used, like, you know, how much of his own life does he put into his films, you know, his own childhood, because it feels real, you know, it feels really real. Yeah, I, it's, uh, there's so many questions I accumulated during the past two minutes and just thinking the possibility that uh, you've created with Tom to kind of give children uh, peace of mind and that's really hard and I think all of us grew up with some level of hardships myself included and whenever I have this conversation with my peers today you know I'm in my 30s now and everybody kind of said something along the line of okay if it's not this it's something along that line but as a kid it's hard for you to dissect your own emotions and say, and break it down and mm. you cannot drive, right? You, you need to schedule playtime with your friends. So there are a lot of constraints, but first of all, I feel like the film is not only made for children, but also for adults uh, like myself. But when kids immerse themselves in the film, there's that relief and there's that space that you created for them. It, it isn't otherwise possible, if you know what I mean. Mm. I feel like we could probably do a separate podcast for Tortora. I was um, nine or 10 years old, just coming out of the hardship I was describing. And the film, I enjoyed very, very much, but at the same time left me with a lot of confusions um, as Mm. well. But I didn't quite get it in the end. I didn't know quite what happened. Whereas with Son of the Sea, I was like, yes, you know, it's... uh, I, I get it. I feel like, you know, there's some level of closure (laughs) to what I was wondering about, you know? Uh, well, I can. I, I suppose to uh, help you shine a light on where, what some of the kind of fundamental, kind of uh, big breakthroughs we had on the development of the story uh, for Song of the Sea was um, for us. Um, let's say I think I'd done maybe in total. I, to be honest with you, I don't know how many drafts of Song of the Sea I, I, I wrote. We 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 made so many different iterations. There was at least you know maybe five, maybe seven drafts. I'm not really sure. I don't really know. We had official drafts, and then there was unofficial drafts, and then. Tom would have done a version of the of the film where we where he would have basically storyboarded the movie, and there were still sequences even in that storyboard which we hadn't really nailed down. But I think a critical moment and a critical point in the development of the story was maybe on the third draft. For me, it was I, I've had this. I was fortunate enough to have a revelation in my first feature about like you know what's what's integral you know to a, a feature story. And one of the, one of the integral things is that. There, there has to be in your story a painful truth that is going to be exposed. And that painful truth has to fuel everything. It's a thematic truth, you know, and it has to fuel your characters and it has to fuel the problem of your film. And it has to be the thing that, that brings everything to a head, you know. And with Song of the Sea, because we're dealing with uh, Celtic mythology, we kind of had too many options. And it, uh, it dazzled us almost like, you know, with, there's, there's such a wide and varied Celtic mythology um, that it's uh, it's overwhelming, you know, and uh, you, you, we were trying to figure out what angle we should take and which stories we should use to try and bolster our story. And it wasn't until I kind of um, hit upon like the, the emotional truth of this boy and his little sister and this boy who blames his sister for the death of his mother. And as soon as I locked in on that, that became the most important thing in the entire story. And all of a sudden, sequences just fell away big set pieces just fell to the side because they weren't relevant to that emotional journey. And um, everything about everything about the journey was there to serve that particular uh, emotional, you know, resolution and re- emotional closure where this kid has to realize that his mother didn't die because of his sister. It's something that happened and he has to forgive her. It's not, it's not her. It's not her fault, you know? And um, as soon as I, I locked in on that for myself as a screenwriter, the entire thing became quite clear, you know? And I think that's, I think that maybe this is the thing that people relate to. They can kind of follow, they kind of lock in on that emotional journey um, more than, you know, uh, the kind of the mythology and kind of uh, all that other kind of like the delightful stuff around it, you know? Maybe that's what it is that kind of people click into.
Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because we can slowly unveil some parts of the story as well. But uh, I was really touched by the boy, which even in some real life situations that it's hard to have siblings, even though we portrayed it as a walk in the park to have, you know, many kids in the family, they get along and of course they'll be best friends, BFFs for life, right? Isn't mm-hmm. that trivial? Whereas in real life, you know, I do think, especially when kids are younger and when they see another baby get brought to the house or when they go to a restaurant together, it's always the baby who gets all the attention. And you see that very natural jealousy. And kids probably spend years dealing with that. I wouldn't know that because I'm the only child. Part of me makes me kind of think back to when my parents even showed affection towards other children and praising them. But I felt really jealous for that. Mm. So, and then there's that pivotal moment where he turned around and he was trying to do everything he could to protect her. And really like a big brother, like a guardian. And I was so mm. touched by that. Yeah, I have, I grew up with, um, I grew up with two older brothers and um, we have completely different personalities. And so I grew up in an environment where there was always conflict. I was the youngest, so I was kind of getting beaten up more than anyone else. But then I was also using my kind of manipulative young baby skills on my parents to try and use the kind of get there. So it was always a push. There was always a power play dynamic going on in my house growing up. And I very clearly remember us. I remember, I just remember the arguments and I remember the fighting quite clearly. And I think that's very true to me. And I'm also witnessing now I have a two-year-old. I have a two-year-old son and I have a newborn. And I'm witnessing from day one, I could already see the, the jealousy emerging in my in my my first my firstborn, and he struggled with it. He's he's struggling with it, you know, uh, you know. And you try as a parent, you're trying to keep the balance, but um, you know, you can't help what people feel. People are wired the way they're wired, and they're going to feel the feelings they feel. And uh, it's just about trying to nurse it and massage it uh, but you know it's a part of life you know we all have different personalities and um, yeah jealousy is a big thing you know that can happen between siblings yeah oh well congratulations i had no idea you have uh two young kids and the second one's a boy or a girl oh it's a girl oh wow so thank you <laughs> yeah i i can only imagine that uh, now being a parent and i know this the film launched in 2014 and you're a new parent and i can imagine how just uh, this parenthood and what you learn what you have learned so far will really fuel into the future films that you'll be working on as well you know mm-hmm. if it's family related if you don't mind i have uh, several questions before we get to your childhood too because i think that we naturally kind of just have gone in there and it's really interesting. I want to learn more. Before we do that, I mm-hmm. I think a lot of people actually don't have a very um, kind of a vivid idea of what a writer or screen a writer actually means. And I want to preface this by saying that I personally have exposed myself to a number of friends who are now living in Hollywood and, you know, they're writers and I get to learn a little bit. But even even then, we have not sat down like this and having a very detailed one-on-one conversation. And yeah. as you know, I live in Boston and there's a school called the Emerson College. And hopefully you get to speak here. You can get to come to visit Boston. That would be great. Um, Emerson is really known for, it's a film school, filmmaking. And uh, I have several friends who attended there. I had a, had a blast. So it's a I guess it's a multi-part question. One is I noticed with writing, there's that uh, exclusive assignment. There's something called a pitched assignment, um, mm-hmm. depending what they call the property. In which case, Song of the Sea is an existing property. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe a story by um, Tom Moore. Um, but then mm-hmm. you're given this opportunity. So could you maybe elaborate a little bit on that, like how this works in general? Yeah. What a screenwriter does is... They have to develop, either come up with a story, um, either take a, an original story that they have, develop the, the story into a screenplay. And in this, the screenplay, you know, uh, basically is a blueprint for the film that you, that you see or will, that, that people will go off and make. So in that script, you have basically um, the action. You have what basically uh, the audience will see. You'll have the dialogue. You're the first person to make the film or it's in your head. Um, so you have to figure it all out. Then, that, so that's let's say if that was a project that I had, uh, let's say that's an original uh, a concept. Then there are adaptations, or you have pitch assignments where someone gives you a book or gives you an existing kind of outline or something like that, or a concept. Even it might be very, very vague, where they might just give you a toy line or something. Say, do a story about that. 
And you literally have to try and fit. You basically have a brand and you have to figure out a story within this universe. And again, that can happen too. (laughs) So I wonder, like, what did you have to work with? I noticed Tom Moore is more of an an artist and maybe Mm. maybe an illustrator. So what are some of the initial material you have to work and what do you have to dream up and imagine? Uh, In the case of Song of the Sea, to be specific, uh, Tom had a... He had a he had a setting. He had the characters. He had this family who lived by the sea. He had uh, obviously the silky. He wanted to play around the silky mythology, and he had a bit, he had a, a kind of a, he had a, an outline for a version of a story, which we didn't really uh, kind of stick to. We kind of had to figure out the story ourselves between us. So we kind of had our we had our characters and we had the setting. And myself and Tom, over the course of the various drafts, came together and we bashed out like you know what the story could be. First of all, in kind of an outlining form. And then I would go and write and go and write the actual screenplay itself and kind of the heavy lifting as such, you know, to try and figure out the version that I can see in my head. And then because I'm because you're the writer, you're the person who are filmmaking in your head and you're kind of coming up with your version of it. And then you uh, in, in the case of Song of the Sea, I would have passed the script over to Tom then. And Tom then would have done a storyboard pass where he would like, you know, uh, take the script and do black and white drawings and create a kind of an animatic, a rough animatic, which temporary voices, where you could see a version of the film like uh, in, in real life. After that, then after he did his pass, let's say out via animatic, I would come back in and we would again as a kind of a like it's just not not just me and Tom. There were other people like, you know, uh, in, in, this, in the studio who would like have their say as well, who would kind of give notes and stuff like that. So it was a very collaborative process. But the actual the actual script writing uh, is a very it's a solitary kind of for me uh, on Song of the Sea was, a, you know, it's me going away for a couple of months and writing that draft and coming up with that, f- formulating that film in my brain. And whatever, like, you know, when it goes back to Tom. Um, whatever kind of resonates with Tom stays, you know, and then if, if something doesn't resonate with Tom, he will give his notes and say, oh, I think maybe we should, there's something about this that doesn't work for me. So we would iterate, basically. Um, and that's kind of like what it's like, I suppose, working, it, because filmmaking is a collaborative medium. Um, you're not a lone soldier. So, uh, you know, throughout the process, you're going to be collaborating with a load of people. Uh, it's You just have to accept and you have to enjoy being able to work with creative people and also recognize good ideas and kind of like, also be able to kind of like throw your ideas in the bin, you know, to and accept better ideas, you know, um, and that's kind of fun. You know, it's a lot of fun when you can have someone else can come and crack something for you. It's great. Like, you know. Yeah. So how big was the team that you collaborated or worked with on a regular basis? And I don't know how long that was out of the, let me see, the, the six years that all of you devoted to the film. I think my, it was really myself and Tom for, uh, let's say, the, the core drafts. And then we would get, let's say, uh, Nora, who is, there's Nora, Nora Toomey and Paul Young are the, also the co-owners um, of uh, Cartoon Saloon. And they would have come in with their notes and, and Nora was great. You know, if we came up with an idea, I would go down to Tom uh, into Cartoon Saloon and we would have do like, you know, uh, story meetings where we would bash out ideas. And myself and Tom would come up with a great idea. And then Tom would knock on the window and call Nora in and we'd pitch the idea to Nora and see how Nora would react. And Nora is just fantastic. She's a, a great barometer. Like, you know, she can really kind of like, you, uh, she, she knows when something's working or when something's not working. So initially it was a really small, tight group of people. And then um, on the other side, then Tom also, as we we're doing it, Tom was, had also started the visual kind of uh, developments, you know, work, working with Adrian Meiju, who was the art director and the amazing art director on Song of the Sea. And uh, so Tom was also in, in tandem kind of beginning to develop the visual language and the visual style of this world as we were progressing with the, you know, the, the story, we'll say. So these things were happening in tandem. And it wasn't until quite late that the, the actual group of people just started to expand and, and basically visual side of things started to group, started to grow. Um, but from a narrative point of view, from the actual kind of story development, it's always stayed very, very contained and very, very tight, you know. But we would have like, you know, different junctures of the story uh, of the, the, say, the development of the story. We would send the script out to, let's say, a trusted kind of group or, or a brain trust. And we would kind of send it out to a, a kind of a network of people that uh, that we're friends with and get, get notes back from people. So we would kind of correlate those notes and see how things are working. And we're kind of modeling ourselves a little bit on the, the Pixar model. That's how Pixar do. I think Pixar kind of pitch, you know, their projects, and you know, constantly to their co-workers. And uh, constantly kind of like people giving a creative input constantly into their into different projects. So we kind of said that's a, we, we, you know, they were so, they were a great model of, uh, of, of and they were making such fantastic movies, particularly in the mid or 2000s. Um, and we said if they're, it works for them, so we should try it ourselves. So that's kind of how we 
how it worked for us. I love that. I, I recently interviewed a group of very young high school designers, and uh, one of them said that the best lesson they've learned in that uh, design class is hold your ideas lightly or loosely. And, uh, yeah. and I thought what you had described, I worked in digital advertising agencies for 10 years, and I noticed just how difficult sometimes it is really for true collaborations to happen because all of us, you know, are, you know, specialized in one area or the other. And sometimes making changes can be really painstaking, you know. Yeah. I wonder, and it's been, I know it's been a while, there may be many scenarios, but do you recall one that, you know, that's kind of changed the story arc uh, slightly or drastically after you've gathered feedback? That's a good question. I think at one stage in the story, I don't. It's actually to do with the end of the story, so I'm I'm going to be bringing up spoilers. So anyone who's listening, um, you know, and you want to see the movie, maybe stop and watch the movie and then come back. Right. Um, so if you have seen the movie, um, I think one of our original endings was that you know, Saoirse, the little girl, left. Um, she left. She went with the fairies. She went with her mother, and uh, and it was devastating. And we were myself and Tom were so convinced that this is the right thing. Let's go for it. Let's kill everyone. Like I said, let's just we went for it. <laughs> And uh, I think it was actually Paul, the producer, was uh, Paul Young. Uh, Paul, uh, he's great. And Paul was like going, lads, it's too, it's too much. People, kids can't handle it. It's just too much. And he was totally right. But in complete, uh, in actually, it was an interesting serendipity that um, uh, the, the, uh, the Tale of Princess Kaguya came out at the same, pretty much the same time. And we saw it the same day. We premiered in the Toronto Film Festival in 2014, I think. And Tale of Princess Kaguya and Song of the Sea actually have a lot of parallels. And it actually, they had their ending in the Tale of Princess Kaguya kind of like reminded us of the original ending we were thinking of for Song of the Sea. Yeah, so it's, um, that was one big change we made that I can think of right now. Oh, even when you're saying that, part of me is like, ah, oh, getting jittery because when I was watching the end, when now we've shared, I was just thinking, oh, what's going to happen, you know? And I thought what the mom said that because Sirsha is half human and, you know, she should stay. But then part of me is like, but what about the mom? Is she going to stay? When is she going to come back and visit oh, again? She... Is she ever going to come back? And... She's unfortunately, she's going, she's going to Tiernanog and she has, she's effectively already deceased. She's gone already unfortunately it's just her spirit who shows up and um oh. i think people actually it's that's the thing that people do get confused with and uh, and that's one yeah. thing you know there's something you see, you see niggly things coming back you kind of you, you know retroactively you're saying oh i should i could have done something just make that a little bit clearer you know or something like that um you know i think like all the films i mean to ring even <laughs> you know a lot of the tv shows especially right i, I think that it's interesting to have leave up to the um, audience imaginations and I'm thinking about some of the very uh, extreme scenarios like the Sopranos or you know and yeah. it's like what and it's certainly not the situation with the film I felt very I felt very satisfied and I think the like you mentioned the animation team did such a phenomenal job really this amazing this gorgeous uh, story and so captivating and on top of that I just want to say shout out to the artists the animators and the musicians who yeah. really brought a like hit home and just you know everything came together to, I want to oh, yeah I want to definitely uh, edge on the art team are amazing and uh, they, they've been you know lauded and deservedly so and the music was so fundamentally important because 
Kila uh, or the bands uh, collaborated with the with the composer Bruno Collet. While we were actually before I even started on the on the working on the script for Song of the Sea, Tom had actually started work on a conceptual trailer for the film as a, an industry kind of uh, promo thing, you know, so he could pitch it to you know production companies and stuff like that or, or investors, and. He, he had worked with them uh, this pairing already on uh, Secret of Kells and um, they had allowed him to use a particular song called D Song for the promo and that particular song was the kind of musical theme that I constantly referred to when writing the script you know and I knew when I heard that music I knew the tone of the film you know and it, it was so important so we knew going forward even though that, that particular piece of music is still in the film but you might notice it. It's actually when Sirius actually trans uh, get, gets the quote the very first time. She gets this quote out of her uh, out of a, a, a chest that's in her dad's wardrobe, and she goes down to the sea, uh, down to the beach. The echo of that original theme is in that piece of music, and it's every time I hear it, I get tingles. Um, it's really beautiful. So then we knew as well because it's Song of the Sea. We knew the film was going would need to revolve around music. We knew that kind of the the central kind of um, musical theme that gets repeated over over and over and over again uh, and ultimately kind of explodes at the end was going to be so important you know in this for this film to work um, and I kept saying to Tom I kept saying keep thinking of like you know uh, Close Encounters of Third Kind and that way you know in Close Encounters there's that um, do 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 you know and no matter how many times you heard that you never got bored of it um, but then when it actually when you come to the kind of the crescendo in that film and we hear it in this full up kind of like you know symphonic kind of majesty it's really beautiful and i that was my reference point in my head i said we need something that's got that simple loveliness and bruno collet uh, uh collaborated with keela and they sent through a couple of versions and they just had it straight away and i went oh there you go and they, they, they did it it's absolutely gorgeous and it's so integral and important to the actual story of the film i can imagine towards the end when you saw everything coming together that moment and with the music i i could see tears in your eyes and many other people you know just that yeah. moment and even i get that sensation just working on like one episode of the podcast because what i try to do is distill three to four of the things that you say and then put simple slow piano um, background music and uh, sometimes i just tear up listening to those 30 seconds. I, but I can imagine for you, visually, musically, artistically, uh, narratively, it just everything. So with that said, of course, you know, even though the film has, uh, I believe, limited release in certain countries, thank God it's in the US, and but received what people say, I'm quoting it directly, received overwhelming acclaim and was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Animated Film at the 87th, which is 2015th Academy Awards. Were you there um, among the audience I wasn't. No, I wasn't. I, I there was. They had, we had so many co-producers that all the producers got tickets. So I was. But no. But I actually got to go to something better. I got to go to. Um, I was Paul Young's date to this thing called um, the Oscar luncheon, which happens uh, two weeks before the actual ceremony. Yes. And it's oh, it's uh, it was really fantastic. You know, they basically it's like a, a wedding with all the nominees, and there's no <laughs> press there or anything like that. And they they like you know they mix up all of the the nominees. So I was sitting beside Richard Linklater, who directed Boyhood that year, and Clint Eastwood was on the table beside me. Oh. Steve Carell was, but um, the biggest thrill from that was. Um, I introduced myself to Richard Linklater, who I absolutely admire. I think he's a, a wonderful filmmaker and uh, he makes beautiful, uh, beautiful films. And I said to him, I just introduced, I said, hey, I'm Will Collins. I, I'm, I wrote Song of the Sea, the animated movie. And he says, oh my God, I just watched that movie with my kids two nights ago. It was absolutely beautiful. I love that movie. And I, was, and I just said, I'm happy. I'm okay. You know, this is the, it was a cool moment, you know. Oh, I I now know which one's gonna be my soundbite at the beginning. What you just oh. told, <laughs> what you just told me is so wonderful because you know someone you admire so much. Then say it back to you. Oh, you are the guy. You know, instead of saying, I, I, I was thinking it must be really interesting for you to be sitting among some of the world class producers, directors, creator directors, and yet everybody's coming coming back to you to say, well, that was, re that was something really special. I enjoyed it with my family, with, with my kids. Wow, bravo. Um, I, you know, I thought about what you said in terms of uh, kind of transition into a little more about you, about career advice for some of the youngsters who are listening to this. And 
you know, there's one question I wrote down and said, how do you define success? And uh, is this film successful in your mind? And, you know, like the metrics we often talk about are, you know, awards, box office, records, merchandise, commercial sales. Like, do any of those truly matter? Like, how do you measure your own success? Um, each each film has got, I suppose, it defines itself. Like you know, Hollywood blockbusters are defined by how much money they take in, and uh, films like Song of the Sea, which are you know you know rel- relatively lo- very low budget animated movies, you know they're never going to play in this. You're never going to play in the same ballpark as these blockbusters or even like you know the like the Pixar movies, you know, financially and whatnot. Um, and I I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten. I've, and I've become a parent. That's, I, I think becoming a parent has changed my attitude uh, towards life and my career and all that sort of stuff. And I've become a lot more focused on just happiness, you know, and not getting too bogged down with uh, trying to, you know, when I was a kid, I dreamed of being at the Oscars. I dreamed of it. It was genuinely, it was like, I remember one year Whoopi Goldberg was presenting the ceremonies and she looked at the camera and she said, you know, there's a kid sitting out there in some sitting room and they're dreaming of being here. And, and I'm telling you, Kate, you're going to be here. You're going to be here. And I was like living in like rural, repressed rural Ireland. And I was thinking, oh, she's talking to me. I'm going to be there someday. I was going to be there. No, I wasn't, I wasn't literally there with Song of the Sea. But I was, I, was in the, I was in the general vicinity when Song of the Sea got nominated. But the, thing about, the weird thing about it is when we got the Oscar nomination, it was absolutely wonderful. It was brilliant. It was like a, a life highlight. But it still didn't, it didn't match the eye of like, you know, seeing my first child being born. And now I take great pleasure. I don't frame my work in accolades anymore. I just enjoy what I do. I'm a creative person and I take pleasure in, you know, working with creative people and seeing things being made. And uh, I've learned that element of like, you know, you need to enjoy it for yourself and don't get bogged down about what you think other people think you should be doing. You know, that sometimes can cripple you where you're kind of worried about how people perceive you. Um, you just got to do what makes you happy. I suppose that's the main thing. You know, just focus on what you listen to your internal voice and focus and be creative. If you want to be creative, be creative. Don't make your goal the Oscar. Won't you come with me where the moon is made of gold and in the morning sun we'll be sailing. Won't you come with me where the ocean meets the sky I love that. And, and typically, that's a really good point to say, wow, this is the podcast couldn't end on a higher note than that. But if you don't mind, I'm going to just dive in a little deeper because you had briefly mentioned where you grew up. And I wonder who yeah. were your main influencers in life at a younger age? And Oh, golly. Uh, yeah, I grew up uh, yeah, I grew up in Ireland, which is in the you know, west, uh, west, very, uh, west of Europe. And uh, in Ireland, I grew up in the southwest of Ireland, in the kind of on the edge of the world. <laughs> and, and when I was growing up, uh, you know, the Irish, back in the 1980s in Ireland, we had a, a very kind of repressed, uh, not regime, but like we was culturally quite repressed and emotionally quite repressed. And it's something that shows up in, my, in, my, in Song of the Sea and in my first movie as well. And uh, there was like, you know, our, you know, in rural Ireland, you know, the main hobbies were, you know, sport and uh, work, <laughs> sport and uh, socializing and uh, consuming alcohol. And there was no, uh, the, the, the idea of working in the entertainment industry was literally, you know, uh, you know, fairy talk. It was, it was ridiculous. It was uh, silly. So I kind of kept my love. I had a, like a deep love for cinema from when I was little, like, you know, so the first influence, big influence on me was definitely George Lucas because I played, I, I played with the Star Wars toys before seven years before I ever saw a Star Wars movie. And I was obsessed with Star Wars. And the first Star Wars movie I saw was The Empire Strikes Back, which made no sense to me and completely befuddled me. And when I saw the ending in The Empire Strikes Back, where Luke, spoiler alert, like, you know, Darth Vader says, Luke, I'm your father, 
I was absolutely gutted and it kind of changed my perception of the world. Um, uh, so that kind of put me down the put me down the road of hanging this, of of um, of uh, thinking that the world is a lot greater than what it is. Um, and I think my inspiration, the people that inspired me, were filmmakers that I loved. Really, like I, I got into Spielberg was a huge, huge influence. And then as I got older, I got into you know obviously like the Scorsese and you know all the kind of the the the, the classic kind of uh, filmmakers. And it wasn't until I uh, until I was in college really I had some good friends who saw that I had creative spirit and uh, encouraged that. And uh, I think they uh, gave me the space to be more for myself, my true self, to emerge, really. And I don't think I would be doing this uh, if it wasn't for the friends that I met in college, the really good friends I met who brought out that side of me or helped that side of me you know, grow. It was there inherently, but they helped it. Mm, I love that. And so I noticed that you had... I'm not sure if you still do have two paths that you've taken, which is actor and writer. And I've seen that combination in some cases, but it also could be appear to be a little unusual for some other people. So do you still feel equally as passionate for both? Or how, how did that come Golly, no. the actor th- The actor thing is an IMDb anomaly. I don't know how that happens. I don't oh. see myself as an actor at all. Uh, I, 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 how it happens, basically, on my first feature, was very, very low budget. And... Um, I think they needed someone to play one of the small parts, you know, and I literally just, I said, they said, will you do it? And I was like, yeah, okay. And I did, I just acted for a day in this one small scene which stressed me out completely. And then on, um, on Song of the Sea, I did like, you know, a couple of voices, you know, when we were doing the voice record, um, myself and Paul, the producer, and, uh, a couple others went in and just did some like temp voices, uh, some of the background like stones and stuff like that and fairies and stuff like that. And we just messed around. So I do not consider myself an actor at all. And um, that's just up there on IMDb. And I don't dictate what IMDb says. And I wish I could kind of remove the actor bit because I don't, I feel like a fraud when that I see that up there. So I know we only have a few minutes left. And mm-hmm. I think a couple of career advice related questions as many of the people who are listening to the podcast are in their 20s or uh, it's a pretty wide age range, anywhere between Mm -hmm. 20 to 50s and 60s. But I notice people in the middle um, tend to be in their 20s thinking about what can I do with my career, still got time to to switch around or 30s or people, a lot of them are reinventing themselves. So Mm -hmm. what are some of the things that uh, you wish you knew before going into screenwriting or writing? Oh, golly. Um, you know, the thing about it is I kind of did a, a career change. Uh, uh, you know, I didn't get into screenwriting or, or, or pursue it kind of actively until my, my mid, mid-20s. Anyway, that's for sure. And from I'm speaking from the point of view of being a writer, and I think I'm glad that I held off pursuing it until I was in my mid-20s. Because I think, you know, being a kind of a storyteller, you know, you need to formulate your philosophies on the world and how the world works and, you know, then pepper your stories with these particular view points of view and philosophies. And I think a younger version of me wouldn't have been able to be able to have the same kind of depth uh, in their uh, in, in their narratives as the kind of the older version of me, uh, really. The advice I'd give anyone who's thinking about, like, you know, changing is dip your toe in the water as in don't just dive in the deep ends you know make it give it a kind of a, a a nice smooth gradient of a transition if you if you want to be a painter if you want to be let's say if you want to try screenwriting and you've never done screenwriting before and you're in a totally different profession first of all what i would recommend you do is see if there's someone who does a part-time course in screenwriting to give you a kind of an introduction into the fundamentals of screenwriting and you don't need to have a master i actually got a master's you know and it, it was brilliant but you don't need to have a master's. You don't need to have any degrees or diplomas or anything to do screenwriting. But if you get someone to introduce you into that, uh, you know, that world, great. A big thing I would say is networks are, you know, it sounds like cynical, but networks, the other word for networks are friends, right? So um, one of the best things I got from doing my master's was not the education I received, but the friendships I made when I was doing my master's. Then as we moved beyond the actual education system, we kept in contact, the close close friends, and we encouraged each other. Whereas if we kind of lost contact, we would have felt adrift, kind of daydreaming about, oh, maybe I should do this. But because if you create a, network, a support network of people who are trying to do the same thing or a similar thing, then at least it will keep you motivated and keep you inspired and maybe, you know, point you towards, hey, hang on a second, there's a window of an opportunity here. And why don't you try it? Why don't you give it a go? That's a big thing. I think uh, just find little, a little group that shares your 
passion or shares your interest and see what grows from there because that's what happened with me. Oh, that's lovely. And like you said, well, this is a universal message and uh, advice to people who want to try, you know, anything new and to, mm. you know, dip your toes and uh, and give yourself a chance. So yeah, don't be and don't be afraid to fail. Failure is your best friend. Failure is tough, but it's your best friend because you know you just need to learn from your failure. You always need to. I took it very hard at the beginning of my career as well, and I was afraid of people kind of criticizing my work, and um, it broke my heart when I got criticism and stuff like that. But you, if you can develop the grit to be able to get back up and listen to what, first of all, kind of figure out who's saying what, what to you, and why they're saying it, um, and if you're able to kind of filter out the productive notes versus people who are just you know trying to say things just for to have their voices heard and then you will actually become stronger your work will become stronger and your your spine will get a bit tougher as well so that's important i love that and i started uh, writing a year ago this is a year into developing uh, podcasting that i forced myself to pick up i was so nervous uh in terms of exposing my writing and yeah uh, um, and then transform some of that into even mini episodes. And they turn out to be very popular, actually. And uh, I was really yeah. stunned. And it was really, it was my own mental block uh, that I couldn't overcome. It wasn't the imagined fear and like criticism that I was yeah. going to get from other people. So um, I before we close this episode, which I, by the way, well, I really want to thank you very much. It's been such a... Um, eye-opening uh, experience. So um, I know you're working a project, new project called Wolf Walkers. And is there anything that is sort of uh, tidbits and uh, information you can give out? Or is it kind of long into the future before it's a launch date? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, another feature I'm doing with uh, Tom Moore. And it's co- I've been co-directed with, uh, uh, he's co-directing with Ross Stewart, who was the art director on Secret of Kells. And uh, it's uh, another feature. It's, I'm delighted to be collaborating with Tom again. You know, we've been kind of, you know, uh, working together now, you know, uh, on and off for nearly a decade. And um, I don't know how much I can reveal about it. Uh, it's set it's set in 1640s in Ireland. Um, and uh, I, I suppose it's uh, about maybe to do with the, the werewolf myth and maybe the Irish kind of version of the werewolf myth. And um, it's really cool. I really love it. I think it's a really cool story. It's um, it's exciting. It's funny. It's a little bit scary. There's a lot of action in it. I must say that what you and Tom Moore have done for your country, Ireland, it's really astonishing because um, after watching the film, I was thinking, you know, learning, hearing about Selkie for the first time and reading the Wikipedia page, it's like, oh, that's kind of cool. I want to be a Selkie. And, <laughs> you know, and you learn so much more about these like mythology from a different country. And I think about like China is where I'm originally from. It's very similar in a way that people can be superstitious. And there are a lot of stories mm. and that are really interesting that I grew up with. So... I have never spent so much time thinking about Ireland. And after I watched the film, I was like, I have to visit the country. I have to go you have there. To visit it. You actually, you have to visit. Actually, I live in the northwest of the country where the film is set. So there's, um, so when I drive home, some of the locations you see in the movie is like, you know, is on, are on my way home. Um, so, uh, so I kind of get nostalgic when I see the, when I see the, the film, I go, oh, that's, that's home. You know? So yeah, you got, you, anyone who's got any inclination of visiting Ireland, you should visit Ireland. There's a beautiful, it's really beautiful. It's gorgeous. I heard it's absolutely gorgeous. I've seen the pictures and people even rent cars uh, to kind of drive around themselves. So yeah, Just I look bring forward a lot to of that. Ra- bring rain, rain gear. Make sure you are prepared for rain. That's the, the one thing. Yeah. Oh, I'm always prepared for rain living in Boston. Okay. <laughs> there you go. So thank you again so much, Will, for joining me on Face World. This has been a phenomenal conversation. Thank you for having me. It was uh, really entertaining. It was great. Yeah, it's awesome.
See 